morning. Our scripture reading today will be from both the Old and the New Testament. We'll be starting with uh, Numbers chapter 12. If you want to turn to the Bibles in front of you, it is on page 205. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked? Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord, Lord heard this. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. At once, the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, Come out of the tent of meeting, all three of you. So the three of them went out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance to the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. When the two of them stepped forward, he said, Listen to my words. When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of the Lord burned against them, and he left them. When the cloud lifted from above the tent, Miriam's skin was leprous. It became as white as snow. Aaron turned toward her and saw that she had a defiling skin disease. And he said to Moses, Please, my Lord, I ask you not to hold against us the sin we have so foolishly committed. Do not let her be like a stillborn infant coming from its mother's womb with its flesh half eaten away. So Moses cried out to the Lord, Please, God, heal her. The Lord replied to Moses, If her father had spit in her face, would she not have been in disgrace for seven days? Confine her without the camp for seven days. After that, she can be brought back. So Miriam was confined outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on until she was brought back. After that, the people left Hazaroth and encamped in the desert of Paran. And then our second passage is Matthew chapter 5. Again, if you're using the Bibles in front of you, that is page 1473. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same manner they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thanks, Ellen. So I'm not going to talk about everything there is to say about meekness this morning. The focus of the series that we're doing is focusing on how God is not reducible. 
that is simplifiable to something that we like or in line with our tastes in many ways and to love the God who is actually there rather than the God that we make up in our own imaginations. We have to attend to what he actually says about himself and take him as he actually is. And though at first we will find it to be more problematic for ourselves, we will find the God who is there to be much more satisfying, much more complete, much more awe-inspiring, much more worthy of worship, and, um, and also the one that's actually there. Um, branding, as I said in the last couple of weeks, is a way that we communicate who we are through an intuitive simplification that connects to the tastes and desires of our audience, right? So if you're trying to brand a business, you're thinking, how do I simplify what we're about for people in a way that is intuitive in its simplicity? Like they see our brand, they go, oh yeah, I know what that means. And then secondly, that it connects with their tastes and desires. Could they go, oh yeah, I want that, right? And there are a lot of ways in which um, the way God actually is in many of his attributes and characteristics does not fit into that. That is that he doesn't in- intuitively simplify. His, his um, attributes are complex often in ways that are paradoxical and that you have to accept all of before they begin to make sense. And so instead of simplifying himself to be this simplistic idol for us that's only one thing, he demands that we become mature human beings. We have to grow rather than him shrink himself. Does that make sense? Which is you're like, I mean, isn't that what everybody wants in a romantic relationship? Right? We all want the other person to like grow in their understanding of us so they can see all of us as we really are. We don't want to have to shrink ourselves into something they expect, right? Um, and God has more relational rights than you, <laughs> right? Um, but also, like, that's how we learn to value another person. When we understand more about who they are, we see the tapestry of them more completely. And if they are, in fact, a noble and, and good and deep person, the more we know, the more we love, right? Um, now, I think it's important to recognize that um, this is true for a lot of God's attributes. First week I talked about his shrouded glory, that he is utterly, beautifully, majestically revealed, and yet also hidden. That that's true of his holy love, that God is ultimately loving. But if you just say God is love, other people's intuitions may not understand love as it actually is, right? God is holy in his love. And then in, in, and that God is meek is not something that people expect from a God who is also Lord. Um, you may have heard the, the reference to God being the Lord of hosts. Have you ever heard that, the Lord of hosts? Do you know what that means? It means the God of armies. That's what it means. That's what a host is in that context. It's a large, large group of people, and people only got together in big, large groups like that when they were going to war. So the Lord of hosts means the God of the armies. That is, he is ultimately and absolutely unequivocally powerful and can destroy any enemy at any moment, at any time, and he could theoretically for any reason, right? And yet, that God, who is the Lord of hosts, reveals himself on every page of the Bible more showing than saying, that he is meek. Now, one of the reasons that's important, if you guys could turn that monitor towards me, it'd be great, um, is that we don't actually live in a culture of meekness, right? Now, there are times where certain cultures will have an emphasis on meekness. That is, a a deferential humility and all these virtues that go along. For example, when I go to India, I have to try as, as best as I can to not act too American. Do you know what that means? It means not meek is what it means. It means like loud and like assertive in unhelpful ways that don't understand what other people need around you and like, why can't we do it this way? And I think we should change that and we can make this better and why don't we do the, right? And I have to like try to pull all that back that just culturally wants to flow out of me. Um, 
and I have to say, okay, that's not how this culture operates. Now, when you have a culture that operates with a value of meekness, like a lot of sub-Saharan, sub-Saharan, a lot of Arab, a lot of, like, like India would be an example. There's cultures that value a certain kind of deferential towards elders, personal meekness, don't try to stand out. When that's a value, meekness becomes a problem because it becomes um, counterfeited by the, the wrong kind of meekness. Does that make sense? In our culture, that's not the problem. The problem is we don't want it at all. <laughs> um, present American culture and urban American culture, um, more than maybe, I don't, know any, I don't know of any other place in the world. There might be another place, maybe Las Vegas, it would be worse than here, right? Where, where the idea is, is that what, what we value, what we think makes a person awesome, what we makes a pr- person like, the kind of person we want to be like, the kind of person we want to follow, the kind of person we want to be, is often antithetical to the biblical ethic of meekness. And when we are antithetical to the biblical ethic of weakness, um, we are being antithetical to the biblical God who is meek. And so we tend to think in terms of like assertiveness, that used to be like, we should stand up for ourselves, or expressiveness, right? Like, I'm just going to be myself, and like, let stuff come out of me, and like, you just have to deal with it, right? Or like, I'm going to be an influencer, and I'm going to tell it like it is, and that's what makes me awesome. Um, or, or we really feel like leadership is the handling and exertion and accumulation of power, right? And the, the problem is, is that this is why branding is difficult when it functions intuitively. A lot of this stuff is like kind of half true, sort of in the right context, in the right way. But the way our culture lives it out, it is utterly antithetical to the character of God. And if we're going to live in a culture that's like that, we need to recognize it's that way. I play this um, game sometimes with my, with my son Jude. Um, when, like, we're, like, I'm taking a break, and he's taking a break from school. It's called Survevio, where you're basically a little circle, and you go around shooting other little circles, right? And um, one of the things, I don't, I don't really like to shoot in other players. Like, I, like I'm not just—I don't get, like, an ego thing out of it. I'm just kind of, like—I like to be strategic. And, and one time, Jude's like, here's the problem, Dad. If you don't attack every little circle you see, um, if you move back or if you just move sideways, they go, oh, I'm going to kill that guy. Like, if you're—like, if you don't aggressively go after it, like, I'm going to get you, they're going to get you because they're going to see weakness, and you're going to be prey, right? And he's totally right. Like, I just, like, attack other people, and they run away, right? And that's kind of a—that's like a very human principle, right? Um, there, there's a lot of people who aren't brave. They're not courageous. But if they smell weakness in you, they're happy to make you their prey. And the more degraded a culture comes from a virtuous life, the more we function like the jungle, right? Like, like the animal kingdom, and like we're sniffing for weakness, and we're biting the people we think will back down. And that just sort of like increases in the very fabric of our relationships with each other, right? And so you begin to think in a culture like that that's developing in that way that what you really need is a way to accumulate power, a way to be powerful, a way to be strong, a way to assert yourself, a way to be dominant, a way to show your confidence, right? And— um, that's very alluring. And because of that, in a culture like ours, the kind of meekness that's found in God himself as he reveals himself throughout scripture, in Christ himself, in everything Jesus ever did, and then in his apostles and in his martyrs and in all who come to believe in him and follow him by his spirit, we're called to meekness in a whole family of virtues around meekness. And there's no way to simplify that into a way that we'll intuitively like, and there's no way that that's going to go along with our natural cultural tastes if we are shaped by what the Bible calls worldliness. Does that make sense? Now, um, in the scriptures, the meek, 
are, that word is used in two ways. One is, is that there is a group of people who are essentially functionally disenfranchised. They're the chronically ill, the poor, people who don't, aren't connected enough to get justice in the courts, those kinds of things. Those people are the meek. They are a group of people, and they have a modesty of humiliation, right? They just, they don't have any power. And so they are stuck in a position of meekness. And what the Old Testament says about those people is, God is for them. God seeks to ultimately bring them justice. And that those people who are meek because they hope in God, it says in Psalm 37, they will inherit the earth. I don't know if you know that Jesus, when he said that, he was quoting Psalm 37. That the meek will inherit the earth, because God has already promised that in Psalm 37, right? But in most of the context of the New Testament, where the wor- there's, there's overlapping words for humility, meekness, and gentleness. You'll notice that in the passage that Ellen read, it said that Moses was the humblest man on earth. And if you read the English Standard Version, it says the meekest. If you go back to the King James, it says meekest, right? Because that's a more specific meaning for that word in that context. In Scripture, when it says in the New Testament meekness, it's not talking about people who are disempowered. It's talking about a virtue that we are supposed to acquire and possess as believers that is good. No matter how much power we have or could accumulate, no matter how much people look to us, no matter how much responsibility we wield— that we're still called to have the ethic that Jesus had in himself, which is meekness. Does that make sense? Now, I have a simple slide for you, right? One of the things that does not simplify very well about meekness is that meekness doesn't stand on its own, right? It's kind of of like thinking that in those Beatitudes, that everyone is like a individual statement of blessing. They're not. They all go together. They're all the same thing, really. Similarly, meekness is is a— is a virtue that exists within a family of virtues. And they're all kind of, they're partly the same and they're slightly different. And they're connected to, um, generally speaking, that meekness, the opposite of meekness, in a way, is boldness. Right? Meekness is, is holding back for a reason. Boldness is pushing forward for a reason. And so it's not as simple as, meekness is not as simple as just you always hold back. Because no, nobody does that in the Bible. Does God always hold back? No. Right? He gave Miriam leprosy in the passage we read this morning. Does Jesus always hold back? Right? The one who flipped over tables, who told the Pharisees how they ex- expected to escape the damnation of hell. Right? Jesus didn't always hold back. Right? And to the apostles, right? The apostle Paul. No, I mean, no, he was often meek, but man, when he had to tell it like it was, for the good of another person, for their good, not his own, he was willing to be bold. Does that make sense? And so if you understand meekness as just holding back, you will misunderstand it, and you will not only n- not understand the virtue, but you'll hate it, and you'll assume, therefore, there's something wrong with Christianity because it, it believes meekness matters. Um, one of the reasons why most of the West believes this is because Frederick Nietzsche, this great, the great philosopher, um, thought of, and before him, um, it was Spinoza, Schopenhauer, divided ethics into, like, the virile ethics of the Romans and the feminine ethics of Christianity. Because to him, meekness as a central ethic of a way we would live our lives, he saw that as, like, feminine and weak and, like, demurring, as opposed to a a different kind of function of strength. I don't think Jesus would have accepted the definition that his ethics were feminine. I think he would have said, no, my ethics are rightly, holistically human. 
Human beings are made up of women and men. They have slightly different temperaments, and they will apply these in slightly different ways out of who I've made them to be. But women will have to be courageous in certain kinds of ways where they will have to step forward and do daring and terrible things. And men will consistently and constantly have to not be bulls in china shops, breaking down other people, but they, they will have to be exerting right meekness constantly. Right? So in that sense, when we look at how the scripture talks about these, there isn't the sense in which boldness is utterly incompatible with meekness. The question is, how does discretion function in maturity and wisdom so that we know how to apply what we're meant to do in each particular situation, right? However, when we look at the New Testament in particular, how we're instructed to live in terms of Christian ethics, there is an enormous emphasis on this side, that left side of things. You can, you can think of it this way, that the focus zone is on the meekness side of that of that slide, of that graph. Why is that? And the answer is, is because that is the emphasis that is psychologically necessary for us. Because though it's true, some of us hate ourselves, and some of us are doormats, and we let people walk all over us, that is not the normal human reaction to being put upon. We are selfish creatures. We are interested in ourselves. We're interested in what's happening to ourselves. Even apart from sin, right, we inhabit our own bodies. We're looking out of our own heads. What we are most familiar with is what's going on with us and not with other people, especially people outside of our sight. And so asserting the things closest to us that are most dear to us is just very natural. Does that make sense? And so we have to go beyond our senses and teach ourselves to choose meekness and its virtues. Does that make sense? Now, by this, I want to make sure it's clear. One is, I want to make sure that it's really clear that when Scripture teaches that we're meant to be meek and we're meant to focus on these, this constellation of virtues surrounding meekness, that does not mean that being bold in a righteous, faith-filled way is wrong. It doesn't mean that, okay? A fully mature Christian will exist sort of like above this line. That is, in boldness and meekness, in virtuous faith right? And faith is often the operative internal dynamic for boldness, and hope the internal operative dynamic for meekness. Why? Because in meekness, you're trusting, right? Um, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy, for Timothy to be gentle in disputing with people who are wrong, so as to give them the best chance for God to grant them repentance. Does that make sense? So you're like, you're trusting away to something, and you're allowing yourself to be put upon more than if you were being bold? Does that make sense? But the most important thing to recognize is that the reason why the meekness side is emphasized is, it's, is the part indwelling sin and our own selfishness and flesh and sin and worldliness drives us away from. And so as believers, we have to constantly emphasize in ourselves and in our lives the ethics and virtues of meekness as the expression of Christ's character and as our desire to be sons and daughters of the living God, who is the God of armies. And then on every page of the Bible shows himself to be meek, long-suffering, humble, lenient, kind, modest. It's also true that um, meekness doesn't brand relative to our tastes. Not only is it a universal human reality relative to the flesh that meekness isn't going to 
brand to us. But it's also true because of just how our culture is changing. We live in a culture— So when I was younger, um, when I was like seven or eight years old, my parents taught me that if you ever like gave money or you did something that was morally praiseworthy for like a group of people, you would always do it anonymously. You wouldn't want anybody to know that you had done it. If you gave like a big gift— like if you were a millionaire and you gave like a big gift to the hospital, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have your name atta- associated with it. You'd do it anonymously because that's the right thing to do, right? Because otherwise you're showing everybody that you're this big shot and you're going to have your name on the thing and so you'll be remembered because you're this big patron person, right? That's totally gone. Do you see that? It's totally gone. I read something in a news thing just this morning that said that, um, you know, there's this organization in town that's going to plaster the name of the people who gave them money on everything, you know? Which is understandable. Why? Because today you're supposed to build your brand, right? So yeah, I'll give this school a million dollars or ten million dollars, and the whole point is, is like, I'm going to get my name on that thing, and everybody's going to know, and my business is going to be better, right? If you think about how people interact business-wise, they do all the social action stuff to build followers, to show that they're on the right side of history, to show that I'm the kind of person you want to be rich because, like, I'm going to do good things that you think are socially aware, Right? That's not how people used to behave, or, or the public ethic of most communities in America believe people should behave. Now, is that bad? I think it's unmitigatingly bad, yes, but it's also just different. It's a, it's a completely different way we behave, and it's mostly different because of technology, right? There, was not, there wasn't social media from, you know, 1880 to 1980, you know what I'm saying? And so people engaged in things differently. That's also true. People focus more locally than globally, Right? Before there was a 24-hour news cycle and ways that you could tweet to people in Russia, the, the most important people were the people you were going to see, the people who were in your community, how they felt about you, what they thought about you, as opposed to aggregating some group of people from around the globe that automatically think like you so you can be rude to your neighbor but still feel like a good person because you can tweet about it to those people that say you're awesome. Right? These dynamics, do you see how they all functionally, systemically work against meekness? You see, um, what was his name? No place for truth. David Wells, writing about sociology and theology, said once, he said, don't you see the system you exist in exerts way more force on you than your ideas? Right? We have our ideas. We believe in Christianity. We believe Jesus rose from the dead. Right? And what Wells said is, that's fantastic. But the system that you live in forms you more than the beliefs that you hold. It's why you need to come to church every week. You can't. It's why you should be in a small group. It's why having a daily time where you read scripture and you pray and maybe you meditate on what you read and what it means and you journal is because you have to create a subsystem to the system of worldliness that influences you more than worldliness does. Does that make sense? And so we have all these things um, moving from liberalism to dogmatism, right? In my lifetime, I've lived in kind of a weird transitional period in American history. I was born in 77. I'm still alive presently. And I've noticed that, like, you could have a conversation. I saw adults who disagreed with each other vehemently having conversations when I was younger. And they were respectful, and you could tell that the conversation was based partly on inquiry. Well, why do you think that? And what's going on? And what's happening? How do we think this, right? Whereas there's been a profound movement just in the last 15 years relative to certain philosophies I won't get into towards dogmatism, because what you're supposed to do now is not have a conversation, but advocate for something that you know is right. And if people are wrong, they're standing in your way, and they're exerting power. They might be saying they're seeking the truth. They might be making an argument with words, but those words are really just a facade for the power they are trying to exert right? That's bull and also true. Because unvirtuous people do pretend 
or people that don't know themselves do all the time argue that they're talking about the truth and you should submit yourself to it because what they're saying is true when in fact they're just trying to win. That, that happens. It happens all the time. People do it all the time. But the minute you think that's all there is, people just make arguments to wield power. All that's left is power and we're all at war with one another which is catastrophic and inhuman and will produce cruelty and brutality in ways we have not yet imagined. You cannot give up on the idea of truth and being truthful yourself and demanding truth from others and being discerning about when you're not being told the truth and being willing in meekness and boldness to say, I'm going to honor you as a human being with humility and full meekness, and I am not going to pretend I believe what you're telling me. You know what I mean? And I, listen, I don't, I'm not favoring any particular view at this point. I'll give you 10 examples of how both sides ought to be doing this, and they don't. From, from teenagers and parents, or spouses, to macro-ideological theories of critical whatever, to political rancor, to everywhere. Meekness dies a thousand deaths. Right? Okay, I better get to the positive argument here, huh? If this will work. Could you slide me forward, guys? Because I don't know what I did here. Maybe I've broken this. Um, So compare that to Numbers 12. Now think about this. It says that Miriam and Aaron, who who are relatives of Moses, right, and very close, and who God has used Miriam as a prophetess, right, and Aaron as somebody who's been a, um, a person through whom God incredibly actively works, okay? So these are godly people who God has used, right? And they do two things. One is um, they personally racistly attack Moses because it says he married a Cushite woman. It says Cushite twice, which means that she's darker, more African. She's less Arabish. There's a difference in racial kind of— she had different hair. She had different skin color. She's a Cushite, right? And they don't like that. Nobody likes people different from them naturally, right? And it's kind of low, and it's kind of funny because there's this point in the scriptures where Moses doesn't circumcise his firstborn son like he was supposed to, and God explicitly told him to. And God comes like in wrath to, to like, in, um, and his Cushite wife like gets up, recognizes God is there, circumcises their son in God's wrath, abates. Like she saves God's prophet as a outsider it's really interesting if you track that through, but, but um, so it's a personal attack. It's a really deep, hurtful attack because they're attacking his wife. His kids are biracial, right? He, he's pissed. This is his wife, and it's racist. It's like it's, it's like it's ugly, right? And you can't fix it. It's not like, it's not like they say his wife talks too much or something, right? Like you can't fix it. She's the color she is, you know what I mean? And then they attack his leadership, and his place as God's leader, and there being a focus to that leadership. Oh, look, God uses us too. We're prophets too, right? And like Moses literally could speak, and God's power would act directly because Moses is a type of Christ, right? He is a, a pre-incarnate prophetic version of what Christ would be. And so God doesn't speak to him in dreams and visions. He speaks to him face to face as the Son and the Father have spoken face to face from eternity past, right? It's a very different kind of relationship. And he could just say, you die, and they would just die. And Moses does nothing. He does nothing. And he lets God handle it, and God handles it, right? And so he comes and he tells Miriam and Aaron what the what for, right? And then he leaves Miriam leprous. 
and Aaron cries out on her behalf, right? We've sinned. This is totally wrong. Please don't let this be. And apparently it's horrible though, because of the description that Aaron compares her to. It's not like, it's not like she got a little bit lighter skin color, that it's like some kind of race irony or something. Like, no, she's like, it's like her skin is like rotting on her body. And what does Moses do? The, the man who has just been racially, personally attacked, his wife has been attacked, his, his livelihood, his leadership, everything he's given his life to, the, the thing he's given up everything for, right? What does he do? Like he lays down prostrate and he cries out to God to heal her, the person who just attacked him and the man who just attacked him. And God does it. And do you see how that is the gospel? Do you understand? That's literally the gospel right there. That we behave like Miriam and Aaron. We just, we, we refuse God's leadership. We refuse his direction. We refuse his law. We refuse his everything. We say, we're just as good as you. We can lead this thing. We can do whatever we want. And then God the Father says, oh no, and exerts law, right? And we recognize the punishment upon us, a damnation, like a, like a, like a rotting leprosy that you, there's nothing left of you and this is done. And um, who, do, who can stop the wrath of God? No man, no woman can stop the wrath of God. Who can hold back God's hand? The answer is nobody but God. Right? And so you'd need someone, someone who God would listen to, someone who stands as the person of God himself in a particular situation, but one that is meek enough to care about you as a treasonous, disgusting, cruel rebel. Right? I mean, think about this. This is something that modern Madisonians could connect with, because until you were Miriam, you probably thought she was a racist bigot and really hated her guts. Right? You're Miriam. I'm Miriam. Right? Who, who would want to cry out on our behalf? after how we behave with no meekness, no humility, no deference, right? And Moses does, he lays down, and he, and he cries out to God to heal them, and God responds, and Miriam is healed and restored and used by God again, if you follow the story. It's unbelievable, right? And Moses is the type of Christ. There's this place in the book of Hebrews where the author says, Jesus is greater than Moses because Moses, what, what does it say? was a faithful servant in all God's house. Now think about that for a second. That's from this passage in Numbers 12. What was he saying? Why was Jesus more faithful than Moses? Why was he better? Well, there's a number of ways, but if you track the Old Testament context, it's because Jesus was even meeker than Moses. The man who could turn aside from the racist attack on his family and his wife and implicitly with his children, who could turn aside from the attack on everything that he stood for, everything that he led, and could turn to the very people who had just attacked him and cry out for mercy for them. Jesus did a hundred thousand times more for you and for me. You understand? Because he was meeker than Moses. The God of armies, the Lord of hosts, is the one who can say, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Right? Okay, I want to jump ahead to some applications, which I intended to spend about 35 minutes on. But we'll spend a couple. Go to that third, third from the end, if you could, guys. Um, go, yeah, go one more. So here's some just real direct applications, okay? We cannot be anything like Jesus the Christ, or like the God of the Scriptures, or like the apostles, or, his, or Christ's martyrs, those willing to give their whole lives to him in every way, unto death, if we do not depart from the spirit of our age. 
You live in a system, you are marinating in a sauce that rejects the central ethics of the character of God himself. Meekness. You cannot do that. And you can't passively or recreationally depart from the idolatry of boldness and assertiveness that our culture assumes. You have to give it up. Chapter 2, in substance, if you're interested. Okay, second is—and this is so important. There are zero valid excuses to get you out of the ethics of Christ. Um, our culture talks a lot of rot about meekness, love, and not by using the language of empathy. And then it completely throws it aside the minute we feel injured by anybody in any way on any level. Do you understand that? We, we, we're like, yes, I need to be a good person. But the minute you step on my foot, I can kill you. <laughs> That's how people behave. I see it all the time. I see it in marriage counseling. I see it in sibling rivalry. I see it um, uh, in, in workplaces. You see this in every human dynamic that, that I take responsibility to be a good person until, um, and to obey the Lord in hope and in faith until somebody injures me. And the moment I've been injured, I have the right to lash out and to get justice because justice is important. Everybody deserves justice. Right? Do you see how, do you see how attractive that is? Right? Because if I'm harmed, if I'm, if I'm misused by somebody, what's, what's a word I can use for that that gets me a lot of moral freight? If you've misused me, then what have I been? Abused, right? I've been abused, right? And if I stretch out the threshold of abuse, right? Anytime I've been misused in my, in my humanity, I've been abused. Now, there are certain levels of abuse by which we should be taking legal action. And I would always encourage people to find a way to get out of it and to do— like, but what we do is we take that, which has all the more capital in the world, like slapping a woman around, right? And we take that word abuse and we stretch it to every way in which we've been injured throughout our lives, by anybody, on any level. And we go, I've been abused. And what I deserve is justice. And the answer is, you don't. You deserve justice. But that's why the operative Christian ethic for meekness is hope. If you read in Psalm 37, meekness is parallel to those who hope in the Lord. Those who hope in the Lord will inherit the earth. The wicked will be swept away, but the meek will inherit the earth. Do you see that operative ethical dynamic there? It's that if you hope in the Lord, if you trust that God is who he is, and he will do what he says, and he is doing what he says, and he is meek, and he is kind and gentle towards the ungodly, and he is caring, and he, he's the Lord of hosts, but he doesn't just lop off heads. He is patient and long-suffering with others. Though he has been injured, and though he deserves justice 10,000 times more than you, he waits and does whatever makes it possible that the rebel who has created an injurious injustice against him might repent, might see with moral gravity what they've done, and might turn around. And revenge doesn't lead other people to see the moral gravity of what they've done. It makes them feel injured by you and want to attack you and fight with you and want a God who is the Lord of hosts who acts like it. Right? There is no out for us. That doesn't take away wise actions to prevent future abuses in cases of severe abuse, okay? So I'm not saying that, like, if you're a counselor or, like, you've been literally physically abused, I'm not saying that you're in this spectrum and none of it should be protected. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is we 
indulge ourselves as a populace, as the human race, to use the logic of abuse to take justice for ourselves that is really revenge and to excuse ourselves from the sacrificial, painful, humble ethic of meekness. If you don't take anything away from this sermon and you take that, you'll be down the stream a ways with a paddle. The third is meekness isn't weakness. I'm not going to say more about that. If you understand the ethic rightly, you'll understand it's not weakness. Fourth is meekness requires faith and hope. I just ex- explained that a little bit. Did you catch that? Hopefully, that hope is the operative ethic for— Okay, great. I'm going to keep moving then. Um, fifth, meekness precedes wisdom. Um, in the book of James, James says to the people, he says, in meekness or humility, receive the word that is planted in you. See what he's saying? He's saying that in order for you to actually learn the truth of God, what he wants to teach you, what he wants to give you, what he wants to show you, um, you have to—this is what it says, verse 19. Dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Don't merely listen to the word and deceive yourselves. Do what it says. When I, when I became a Christian, um, er, in my early college years, I was part of a very charismatic Christian group. And one of the teachings that was really hot then was being teachable, right? Like as a young person, having enough humility to listen to people older than me or listen to the scriptures or like allow myself to be patent and not be a know-it-all, right? I don't know where else I've really been immersed in that teaching, but it changed my life in an incredibly positive way. Um, if, if you haven't gone through an emotional and psychological process of healing and change in which you have intentionally endeavored to not be a know-it-all, to not be a self-defender or a self-justifier, and to become a person who is teachable, who you want to know any truth, all wisdom coming from any source, even people who hate your guts, so that you would learn from your critics, you would learn from anybody, but most importantly, you would learn from the Spirit or the Word that has been planted in you. The work of the Spirit in your conscience, alivening what God has spoken in the Scriptures and in His Christ, and saying to you, do something with this. Listen to this. If if you will listen to God, be open to Him emotionally, meekly, meekly, inside of yourself, through your conscience, by means of the Spirit, on the basis of God, God has already spoken and shown about himself, God will speak to you. He will teach you. And James says that precedes becoming wise and mature. And this does not have an age ticker on it. I mean, I especially implore to those of you who are younger, because you can benefit from it for many years, hopefully. But any of us who are teachable will benefit from it in whatever coming moments we have left, Right? This should change our speech to non-Christians. You'll remember the verse, probably some of you, in 1 Peter, where it says, um, And your conscience set apart Christ as Lord, and be prepared to give an answer as to the reason for the hope that is within you, but do this with gentleness, also translatable to meekness and respect. When we speak to non-Christians, right? Listen, there's so many YouTube channels and commentators. Like, you're supposed to own whoever you're talking to. You know what I'm talking about? Like, you, you can get an own the libs mug, right? And you can get, like, everybody's trying to own everybody. Drop the mic. Own them, man. Um, Jesus, Jesus doesn't like that. Can I, just, can I just share with you? Based on what Jesus has sp- spoken and shown about himself, the Lord of hosts, who could own everybody, is meek 
and he doesn't own people until the appointed time, which means he's used up every opportunity for meekness he possibly could. And so that's how we should talk to non-Christians. If you flip forward a, a thing, it's also how we talk to Christians when we're having disputes with them. It says in 2 Tim- Timothy about an elder, or no, 2 Timothy about Timothy, how he should relate to people. He, says, he said, listen, when you dispute with people, do it with a gentleness so that God could grant them repentance. Like when you're arguing with somebody about something, the goal is not to win. It doesn't matter if they're a non-Christian or somebody who is a Christian, who is your brother and sister in Christ that you have a real disagreement with, but you should speak to them even if you know they're wrong and that wrongness is sinful in such a way as to invite them to receive the truth, hoping that God will work and lead them to repentance. Because do you know what that recognizes? Do you see how advanced the Apostle Paul was because he was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God? Paul understood that it wasn't a philosophy argument. He understood that it was a psychological reality. We are stubborn. And so if I'm going to change my mind to the truth, I don't just need the information that you'll argue with me. God has to give me the emotional grace to admit that I was wrong, which is a hundred times harder than conceptually understanding that I'm mistaken. Right? It also change how we restore people. It says in Galatians 6, he says, those who sin— you should gently or meekly restore. But be careful lest you fall into the same sin. And then it should change how we serve and lead. Right? There is, um, well, I said, I said something about this when I brought up Dave and Donna. So go to, that, go to that last slide about the church, if you would. So let me just, some quick applications about us as a church. The first is, is that elders should be models of meekness. Numerous qualifications in the lists in 1 Timothy and Titus 1 specifically focus on us being, elders being restrained and not given to anger and temperate. And those, that's that family of virtues around meekness, which gets to number five there, that we must insist on biblical qualifications of leadership. Not who's most charismatic, not who's funniest, not who's most interesting, not who can wear the tightest pants, but who has the biblical qualifications of leadership, central to that being the virtues surrounding meekness, humility, and gentleness, and kindness. Does that make sense? Second is we will not submit to spiritual terrorists. Um, there are so many churches that people are meek in the sense of weakness, and they have in their churches people who are bold in the ungodly sense, and those terrorists hold churches hostages, whole flocks of the people of God from growing, from developing, from having kindness in their midst. I have a friend who, who uh, was a financial planner. He just became a pastor, and it was a smaller church. They'd had 11 pastors in 11 years. That's not good if you were wondering generally speaking. It doesn't mean they're that awesome that they've had that many pets. And um, there was this one couple, and they just fought the whole way. And his first Sunday, they stood up, and like, while he's talking, and they're like, you should be here. He's like, I don't think you get to say that. I don't think you get to be that person in this church, right? And they, and they just, he just resisted them as meekly as he could, but he resisted them. He did not submit to their domination, and they left. Um, my, my mentor, um, Doug Pennington, said, he said, Nick, if anybody um, ever tells you that, like, you do this or I'm leaving, you do this or I'm going to make a huge stink, you do this or, he's like, the next five words out of your mouth at this church is going to be, we will miss you. you. We will never allow somebody who does not understand the meekness of God to terrorize and hold hostage the church of God, right? Because it's, I want to, I'm going to do it as meek as I can do it, but I'm going to run off that wolf, and so are we. Does that make sense? And, and we're going to endeavor not to be that wolf, right? 
Three is we don't use coercion to win. We're never gonna, we're never gonna win as a church out in the culture, politically, um, whether or not we have to wear masks anymore. We're not, we're not gonna do it by, by exerting coercion and using whatever power we can muster up to stick it to people so that we can win. That's not what Christians do. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, our weapons, the weapons of our warfare, are not the weapons of this world. Instead, we demolish arguments and we pull down strongholds such that the truth and the gospel can transform people. That last bit was me paraphrasing. Right? He explicitly says, the way the world fights is not how we fight. Now think about that. What does meekness mean? Does meekness mean weakness? Does meekness mean you don't fight? No, you do fight. You're going to fight every day of your life. Meekness requires an enormous amount of courage. But we do not fight with the same kinds of weapons. We don't fight in the same way. We give everything that's in us for the good and beauty of Christ so that his reputation could be known and people could know and believe in him and trust him so that our enemies could be saved and become our closest friends. We fight every day as hard as we can with completely different weapons. Namely, among them are kindness, compassion, humility, hope, faith. Did you wish you missed church today? Right. Fourth, we don't have leadership gods. Like, I'm not disposable, but I'm replaceable. Do you understand? And so is everybody. One of the, w- the ways I, I like is that Nicole has this, um, this rule um, that if you want to be on the worship team, you have to be open to lead and help people worship anywhere. So if she sends you to youth ministry, you go to youth ministry. If, you, if she sends you to children's ministry, you go to children's ministry. If there's a small group that wants to lead, you go, you go there. And if you're too good for that, you don't get to sing on stage. This isn't a show. Right? And so the, the point of that is to make sure that all of those who serve are serving with meekness. What good will our worship be if that's not what's, what's the base of the soup? You know what I mean? It's not water, it's poison if it's something other than that, right? Um, meek in our controversies. And then lastly, um, Jesus' name, not our brand, right? Um, meekness as High Point Church means that if High Point Church is a church of 100 people or 10,000 people, the impression we leave on people is that Jesus Christ and his church and life in his spirit are great. And the minute, the faster they can forget the name Nick Gibson, the faster they can forget the name High Point Church, the better. What we want is people taking walks with friends on Wednesday, talking about the beauty and glory of Christ and how passionately they want to serve him and obey him more deeply and know him more intimately. And then for the other person to be like, do you remember who preached on Sunday? And the other person goes, I have no idea. That's what we want. That's what we want. Do you understand? And so we we support missionaries all over the world. And our name is not on any of that right? Other people are getting credit. Jesus' name is getting credit. We don't get any credit for it. We support churches in Madison. We don't even, we're not, not, we're not denominational. We don't even have a club to support. But we support other gospel preaching churches that are growing or that are doing good work. And we just, we give them your money. Do you know that? So this, like last week, there's a church in in town that we, we served some during the pandemic. Um, uh, I'm having a brain thing with that, with the name. Anyway, it's Sam Toombs Church. And they, they figured their church is, is getting to be standing room only. There's no, there was no space for kids, right? But they're in a, they're in a, like a, a commercial building. And so they could expand their lease to take out a couple of walls and double their worship space for about $40,000. Okay, now listen. 
you're not probably in church work, and you, some, most of you aren't in real estate. But to have a church double its capacity for $40,000 is nothing. Okay, it's like, that's the best buy I've ever heard of, okay, for church capacity. And it's a minority church. It's standing room only. This is a no-brainer. So, like, we gave the first $15,000 at Typo Church, which is like, here's, here's the first $15,000. Tell us how you're doing with your fundraising, because we don't want to do it all for them. I mean, their church takes pride in giving their money and, and serving and working, right? But, like, we're going to make sure that's done. And, and do you know what that means? If, listen, if we hadn't given away all this money we've been giving away for the last several years, we would, do you know we'd have a building expansion already? We'd have this like state-of-the-art youth center with like LED screens and like probably frozen yogurt dispensers and like we, we'd have all that stuff and we'd have it, listen, we'd have it almost paid off. We'd have built it five years ago. We'd have it almost paid off by now. We'd have like $200,000 left on it. We just keep giving $400,000 away every year, right? It's because we serve the Lord of hosts. He's got plenty of money and he's meek. And the beauty of the work he's given us is to make his name great as the Lord of hosts who is meek. And if, if we embrace that, if we enjoy that, if we give ourselves to it, we, it will transform us and it will mature us and it will expand us and it will, it, will, it will simplify things in the right kind of way rather than making them spiritually simplistic in the ugly kind of way. And we will be—hope will lead to joy in a way that will be— increasingly expanding, and we come to the tests of meekness, like Aline this morning. It's a test of meekness. Can you hope and trust in the God who allowed your son to die last night? Like, like, she's facing a major test of meekness this morning, right? Dave and Donna faced a little test of meekness every day for 20 years. There's a thousand versions of the test, but the hope in the Christ who represents to us the God of all armies who is meek will change you in a way a simplistic, branded, logo, nonsense, simplistic idol God never could. So believe in Jesus, the real one, a little more today. Let's pray, God. God, I pray you'd give me the future grace of concision, but I pray that what we talked about, what is in your scriptures, what you've said about your meekness would change us, would, would make us happy, would give us the experience of the blessedness you talk about, talked about at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, that it would, it would help us to be people who are increasingly strong and increasingly bold in all the right ways and indiscretion, increasingly meek in all the right ways, and that we would be able to invite your enemies and your children to come closer to you with kindness and grace and gentleness and humility and hope. We pray that you'd make us meek. In Jesus' name.